Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So today's topic, uh, we're going to dive into a little bit of talking about backboarding, um, which sort of generally is the, the concept of taking a particular feature or a functionality um, in sort of a current version, um, typically of an operating system or an SDK, and creating that same capability in a previous or older version of this. And so this is a, a, a sort of a technique or something that you often find yourself having to do if you want to present a common um, sort of user experience across different uh, versions of a platform, um, but without um, like but it's just sort of in a way that is good for the user, but potentially complicated and annoying for you as the developer, because rather than sort of just degrading the experience as you go backwards in sort of sort of age of, you know, rather than iOS 13 to iOS 12, you know, if there's a new feature in iOS 13 that you want to take advantage of. You backport that into iOS 12 by essentially recreating either, you know, a, a subset of the functionality or a full version of the functionality. And you're kind of taking on the responsibility that the platform vendor typically would take on by doing this. So it's a tricky thing to do necessarily want to do, but every now and then, um, it is something that I found to be useful and essential um, in, in many ways. And recently I ran into this kind of where I've kind of, in my mind, I'm preemptively backporting some features um, because as we're recording, we're about a month away from WWDC. And so, you know, in about a month, we'll probably get a whole new uh, set of functionalities and capabilities on all the various Apple platforms. And for me specifically, I'm, you know, I'm expecting watchOS um, 7 is going to include, a, you know, whatever sort of Swift UI version 2 is. And that is likely going to include a lot of new functionalities and new controls, things that are kind of either missing or awkward to do currently. Um, and so I expect that to come. But in the meantime, it's kind of this awkward thing of do I want to hold off on adding features or taking building my own personal controls um, and capabilities into the app, waiting to see what they're going to do. And specifically, I ran into a situation where I'm, I want to do a lot of mapping um, in WatchSmith. And this kind of mapping is something that is just not, there's no built-in controls for this. You know, on iOS, you have uh, MapKit. And even if you're using SwiftUI, you could use MapKit by wrapping it um, kind of in our, there's, you know, you can wrap UI Kit controls in SwiftUI controls. And you'll end up with something that um, is pretty reasonable. Um, but on watchOS, there is no map kit. So if I want to do this, I have to build it entirely myself. Um, and as I was kind of going down the path of like, do I want to start this project knowing that, you know, watchOS 7 may introduce, you know, map control, like a map control for SwiftUI on the watch, and it'll be great. Um, and in the end, I kind of sort of went on the, well... That, that would only be useful to me if I ha- if I was able to require watchOS 7 like right away. And if I could, then maybe that would be useful waiting for. And then this would just be a feature that I push off, um, you know, until September. But like as it is, I was like, A, I don't necessarily want to wait till September for this. I want to get it out sooner than that. And then B was the reality that I feel like we're entering this kind of awkward period with, the, with all of the uh, sort of operating systems and platforms generally where we're going to have a much higher degree of um, sort of backwards compatibility for a while. Like I feel like we've talked about it many, many times that I sort of iOS 12 seems like it's going to be lingering for a long time, um, at least in sort of a way that we need to be relevant and sort of keep support for. And I kind of have a feeling that watchOS 6 kind of feels like it might be the same thing. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we lose, uh, if we drop support for the series one and two uh, watches with watchOS 7. And if that's the case, then six might become 
kind of the new baseline that everything has to hold on to because while the one in the series one and two watches aren't a dramatic sort of proportion of the, the user base i think it's going to be a similar story to ios 12 where it's enough that um, people are going to kind of want to keep using those watches you know, for a long time um, and so i was like well i guess that means that i'm going to have to build this myself which is you know which is an interesting engineering challenge but um, and then kind of have this funny expectation that I might be preemptively backporting this functionality um, that, you know, sort of in watchOS 7, I may completely not use this, this my version of mapping. But in, um, you know, in, in whenever anytime I'm in watchOS 6 land, then I have to use my version of mapping. And so it was just kind of an interesting thing where you have these weird parallel experiences, because what I don't want to do necessarily is go down the path where like features just disappear when you're um, on one platform or another, because that's a, a giant support headache where like in this screenshot, I see this feature. Why can't I see this feature? Um, and that's a nightmare. And so I tend to try and backport as much as I can. Um, but the technical implementation of that is certainly not straightforward. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it is worth, you know, very quickly revisiting why this is important. As you touched on, you know, we, these old OSs are sticking around longer and longer than they used to. You know, back when the platform was younger, the OSs um, would would move pretty quickly. People would update pretty quickly. It was uh, a more enthusiast base for many of our apps and, and devices were being replaced more often. So having to keep around an old device for a long time um, was less of a concern back in the days of, you know, faster update cycles, younger platforms, much more um, carrier subsidizing of phone prices. So like you pretty much everybody updated every two years because it made no sense not to. Um, so there, you know, there was all that going on. And in, in the modern era, we have devices that stick around for a much longer time. We have a much larger uh, market, which is good. In, but in the sense that now, though, uh, there's a lot more of the market that's more conservative or unable to upgrade their device very quickly. And so we have, you know, if we want to capture decent market share, or if, or if you know, we don't don't want to just leave money on the table, we do have to support older OSs for longer than we used to. You know, my my advice for years was, Indies should never support anything be anything before the current version because we don't have time we might as well you know use all the newest modern stuff to our advantage and just leave people who don't update in the dust and that's just become harder and harder in recent years you know i went through the same thing myself where last fall with overcast i immediately required uh, ios 13 uh, within i think two weeks of it being released something like that within a, a pretty short time and that bit me really hard, and I, I angered a lot of people, and I had to eventually go back and re-add support for iOS 12. Um, and I, I also had re- required watchOS 6, same problem, so I had to go back and re-add support for watchOS 5. Um, and I, I stand by those as being the right decisions. Like I, I, I'm glad I went back and re-added the, re-added the support uh, because I needed it. And now, as we approach the you know new OS season, it certainly raises the question of, well, do I move it forward this year? Do, do I, you know, this fall, do I require iOS 13 and, and you know, keep it just like one version back like that? And do I require watch OS 6? Um, and, you know, it, it is a really tricky thing because so often we will get awesome new APIs that we will use. The good thing is that we are not the only people, you know, like me and Dave and you are, you know, sole theoretical listener out there we are not the only people who are facing this problem. We are not, we're not making the only apps out there where the developers want to use new features, but they can't, for whatever reason, drop support for the old OSs quite yet. And so other people face this problem in mass, and they make solutions to help with this. And you know I'm not a huge fan of using a bunch of third-party code in my app, 
But this is one area where third-party code can actually help. Almost always, almost every year, whatever like you know significant new APIs are added to iOS, there's usually within a couple of months a third-party library that brings similar or identical functionality to the, the previous version of iOS. So you know, back when they added Collection View, for instance, there was like for for previous versions of, of iOS, there was a Collection View class that some developer made. I, I can't remember offhand. And it was it was almost directly or directly compatible, um, and you know so doing something like that, um, I tend to call it a shim. Uh, I think that's a fairly common term for it, where like somebody basically just implements the new API using the old OS and releases a library so that you can directly use it. Like you and and you know you can use the available checks to you know depending on which one you want to bind to and everything else, but like you can usually directly code against the new API um, if it's something that can be done fairly easily on the old OS and have some library take care of the old OS version for you. Uh, that doesn't work so well with things like Swift UI, where like it's just a, a massive problem domain that like no one's going to re-implement Swift UI. Uh, although, have they? I haven't actually looked. Probably not. I, I know there were, there were some people when it first came out who I think explored doing that um, in terms of that you could obviously, like you, you could theoretically, you know, Swift UI is just like a domain-specific language that sort of describes what you want the UI to look like. And so you could re-implement it in anything, and I know people have implemented, looked at implementing it for previous versions of iOS, as well as even potentially like for other platforms or for the web. Like, I think someone made an HTML renderer for it. Um, like, you, there are certainly efforts afoot for that. Um, I think that's an example where I don't think that, like that kind of level of backporting is as useful because um, it's such a young and changing like like trying to keep that up to date feels very challenging and difficult and like if you're going into the world of swift ui just like go into the world of swift ui um but i think it is certainly an effort that some people do where it's like you build these shims where you either transparently or into, or like explicitly will you know sort of support both uh the same kind of functionality on both on both uh sort of both platforms and i think that's interesting like i think what was especially interesting is on the sh- like how you build those like there's a, a facet i think it's an interesting technical question of do you want those those shims to be transparent to you or like the the shim itself is like pretending to be a ui collection view and um just like is on you know, on on it's doing the, the sort of the clever work to hide itself away on iOS 13 so it doesn't conflict with Apple's version of you know UI collection view but on iOS 12 it's like oh I can totally be um you know UI collection view and call myself that and all your code is going to exactly the same named things uh, like personally which is like an interesting thing from a, like a, from a programming perspective it means that your like core business logic code is probably cleaner because there's less sort of checks back and forth um, but from a, like, I don't know, from like a code smell perspective, that always makes me nervous when someone else is implementing, like, you know, UI, it's just something that has UI in front of it. And then I don't necessarily know, like, exactly which version I'm dealing with. And you're trying to, like, deal with debugging. Like, you have a weird behavior on some platform, and, like, trying to track down exactly where that is and how that, how that, where that sort of the root of that is. I don't really love. And so I tend to prefer the path where, you know, I, I have, somewhat explicit things that are are delegating into into a differently named a different like a totally separate version and i'm just like building a layer on top of like the shim and the real thing and talking to that so like i prefer to take the approach of doing a higher level abstraction that does the delegation for me which i don't know if it's actually that different but conceptually for me i think it's different but that is certainly another approach too that you can take for this um you know where it becomes almost transparent to, to you as a developer yeah, that's the approach that I tend to take. I mean, 
you know, and because like, I feel like if you're if you're looking for guidance on you know whether this is a good idea of a kind of thing to do, you know, you can look at first of all just like the the scale, the size of what functionality you're trying to make work on the old OS. If it's not that big of a problem set, so for instance, like you know, iOS 13 added the diffable data source stuff, and there are lots of libraries to do that on older versions of iOS, and that's it's a fairly small or or fairly um isolated problem domain where you're not having like massive parts of your app intricately involved with some huge framework to accomplish this it's a fairly straightforward api and the logic inside the api might be complex but you know it, it's fairly easy to isolate it doesn't touch all of your code whereas it's something like a ui framework like swift ui like having that be what you're trying to mimic on an older version is like it has its tentacles all throughout your app and it's much more complex and it's it's much larger of like a surface area to have problems and that i feel like is usually unwise to do that level of of um of backporting but if you have like a smaller component like a diffable data source api that's a much easier problem domain and that and it's it's like a smaller more focused component easier to backport without causing direct problems and then as for the approach i think you're right i think when you see things when you see a direct shim or a direct replacement where it tries to make it so that you don't have to think about this this replacement exists that you can just code against the new api and it somehow magically works that is tricky and it 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 does have a much higher potential for problems. Yeah, because it, it makes me think of like on Android, in some ways they work around this with, a, a, they have a much more robust essentially backporting system where they have the Google Play services, which is in some ways like this first party shim that they provide that they let you deal in sort of, there's a two versions that, uh, of the, there, there's like the, the platform is broken into two parts. There's the actual OS, which will move forward um, like as sort of as you would typically imagine, and then there's the Google Play services, which is a set of components that they're they they like Google is backporting to to work on any um, of the previous versions of the OS, and in that case, like that's kind of an interesting approach where the, uh, you can kind of trust that they're doing the hard work to make sure that it actually works the same and is a consistent experience, and that there's no weird bugs and there's no weird issues um, across platforms. Like they're they're doing they're taking care of that for you. Um, and you know, like if, if Apple provided something like that, then that would certainly be interesting. Like if they provided a library that we could link to that, you know, added support for some, you know, so, so some new thing on older versions, which I'm trying to think, I can't think of a time that they've ever, um, done that. There was some feature I have this vague recollection of that existed in I in the previous version of iOS that it, like it existed, but it was private and they made it so that you could access it in a subsequent, like version of thing on that old version i have i don't know what that was but that's, that that sounds vaguely right to me but generally popovers that might be but maybe it was popovers like there was a thing where it's like it, it existed but it you know like we could finally access it but typically on, on ios we're, we're just kind of stuck and like this this is definitely one of those tricky things where like pulling in third like you know some kind of third-party library and having it do like core major um, func- like functionality of your application is definitely feels like a much higher, a pretty substantial risk. Um, like, I mean, certainly it's a risk that is different depending on the like the usage the usage distribution of your application. Where like if you have lots and lots of um, like people still running old versions, then you have to be even more careful. Like if this is a di- sort of a diminishing returns situation where 
you know, right now you, you have 10% of your people on the old platform and then you expect it to continue to decline over time. Um, then, you know, dealing with the potential edge cases or problems or bugs on that platform might be like just an, ex- an acceptable risk that you have to take. But, um, like it's definitely a tricky thing. And sometimes I do wish that Apple did the approach of kind of having two different things that there was the OS and then there was the, like the functionality part. And I know they don't need to typically primarily because iOS has such good adoption, but like in a world where I feel like their adoption is slowing down a little bit, not, not, not necessarily for new things that can support it, but because they're having, you know, devices that there are, have such long lives, um, that eventually, you know, don't get the new stuff that it might be something that they may have to, um, look at and potentially model after what Google does. Yeah, honestly, I don't see it happening. I, like, I think Apple's, I think you're right that the need for it is ever increasing as the rate of software updating slows down for them. But also, it's just so not Apple style to give significant support to old OSs at all. Like, it's Apple style is like, we've moved on, so should you, period. <laughs> it's a very, like, you know, it's a very, um, you know, unfriendly attitude towards, uh, ho- towards hold on, holding on to the old version unnecessarily. Um, and for people who, are forced to hold on to the old version because the new version doesn't work on their devices, Apple's position tends to be buy a new device. So it's it's very much uh, not a very friendly attitude towards that. But anyway, we are brought to you this week by, surprise, Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. They have 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest in Sydney, Australia. All of them feature their enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network. So Linode delivers the performance you expect at a surprisingly good price. I'm, I'm a Linode customer. Dave's a Linode customer. It's a wonderful service. I've been with them for eight years now, and I have all of Overcast hosted there. It's a wonderful service, a wonderful host, great value, great performance, great support when you need it. You can get started today with a $20 credit. You'll get access to all of their wonderful features. They have plans starting at just $5 a month. All of these servers come with root access, of course. You can install whatever kind of software you need to install. They have one-click installs if you want to save some time for popular things like WordPress, a LAMP stack, game servers, so much more. They have wonderful plans to choose from all these different you know, general-purpose plans, plus things like specialized plans for needs such as dedicated CPUs or GPU compute plans, high memory plans, and so on. Go to linode.com slash radar and use promo code under the radar 2020 when creating a new account and you will get a $20 credit towards your next project. They're also hiring right now. If that interests you, go to linode.com slash careers to find out more. Everyone else, go to linode.com slash radar. Once again, use promo code under the radar 2020 for that $20 credit. Our thanks to Linode for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So something else that I think is interesting when you talk about backboarding is perhaps like the opposite of it, which is the like forward boarding, I suppose, which is the situation you find yourself in um, where, you know, you have an implementation for some particular feature or capability in your application. And then the, you know, the platform vendor creates a alternative implementation, essentially, of that capability, that function, the things that you previously had to do with custom code, they're providing a standard way to do that. And kind of thinking through when you would actually want to move forward to that or adopt it. And like, this could be like in my case where I'm, you know, I have my version of, you know, like, 
you know, WatchSmith map kit um, that I, I've, I've implemented. And if they introduce their own, like, should I move to it or should I and, you know, deal with the backporting issue where I have just these two sort of parallel versions or if I just keep using the old version um, for a long time? Or you could also imagine a world where you just like, if, you know, there's a new feature that you need to support um, because it's, you know, something that people are going to want to expect, but you might just implement it using the tools available for you in the old version of the OS. Like you could do, you know, dark mode without all the cool new dark mode features in iOS 13, um, which is ultimately what I ended up doing. Like I just, my dark mode is iOS 12 um, entirely, except for there's a few little things where I, on iOS 13, I'll, you know, check the system-wide dark mode to know if I should switch between light and dark, but I don't use to take advantage of any of the kind of the new built in things that are, you know, where it can automatically switch the color provided to a control or things for you. Like I'm just doing it all the old boring way in iOS 12 and I can just like keep that going. And at some, you know, at some point maybe it would make sense to kind of future port that functionality into something, but um, typically it isn't, but I mean, like I imagine I'm thinking, for example, like an overcast, like if they added a silence removal, um, like thing directly into AV player as one of the options, like right now you can change the rate. And if they just had like a Boolean where it's like remove silences, yes, no, like at some point, like, would you, would you want to remove smart speed or your implementation if you were able to move to like their own, their, their own version of it? Depends on if there's any good. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, that's that's obviously that's certainly a question. But you would imagine, like, they, they think with so many of these things, like they have the advantage of working at such a lower level that so often, like, their version can be so much better than anything that we can do. Well, and also, like, they have access to all their all their APIs. Like, one of the issues that I of, I often face is um, trying to develop functionality for the Apple Watch, and certain APIs are just not available, even though I know they're there but they're not available publicly for developers in that OS release. And so Apple can use them, but we can't, right? So there are lots of things like that that Apple could do uh, where we just couldn't. And you know, a, a first-party solution would be substantially better than anything we could make ourselves. Um, but yeah, and actually, like the, the area of audio functionality and dark mode, those are two things, like I wrote down my examples of things I've shimmed for compatibility reasons. And uh, dark mode and audio functionality are the two categories I have here. You know, like my, I built my dark mode entirely for previous versions of iOS because I've had dark mode as an option in Overcast forever, and uh, and so it it was you know very simple for me to make it twelve compatible again. All I basically did was add a toggle at the top of the screen when you're running iOS twelve of like, are you in dark mode right now or not? On or off? And in 13, that's just not there, and it uses the system functionality for determining whether you should be in dark mode or not. But the rest of the screen of choosing, like, what should be your light theme and what should be your dark theme, that's the same across both OSs. Um, You know, in the audio area, I have, um, on the main app side, there was a new audio unit type that made certain direct playback methods, like, that are, like, really close to the hardware, it made them easier to make, way easier to make. Uh, that was available on iOS 13 and, and above only. I built my newest audio engine against that, requiring that. But there was a crazy API workaround that you could do that is pretty hacky and works on iOS 12. And so I basically have an abstracted something. I think I believe it called it direct audio unit. And I it, it you know on iOS 13 it isn't even used. I can just use the built-in system functionality for it, whatever audio unit it is, and it, and it works fine. On iOS 12, I call my direct audio unit, but it follows the same API. Um, similarly, on watchOS 5 com- uh, compatibility, my latest update to the watch, 
And yes, I know there are some issues with it. I'm working on that. But my latest update to the watch, uh, it added streaming capability. And to do that, I had to I had to use AV Player. AV Player does not work this way on WatchOS five. Like it, it just doesn't it doesn't work the way I needed to. On WatchOS five, you had to use AV Audio Player. So rather than like you know trying to shim it so it's perfect with AV Player. I went with the abstraction model of compatibility shims, which is I just went a level up and I have something called, I'm pretty sure, Watch Audio Player <laughs> on the watch. And Watch Audio Player has two subclasses. One uses AV Player, one uses the old AV Audio Player. The AV Player one supports streaming, the other one doesn't. And so at runtime, I just check to see what you're running and I use one, you know, I, I'm pretty sure it's just a simple if available check. I, I use the modern AV player one if your OS supports it. And if not, I use the old one, but they present the same interface to the app. And so the entire rest of the app is only calling into that watch audio player abstraction. And the great thing about doing the abstraction method instead of just trying to like directly provide this API is that you can make the abstraction only do the subset of functionality that you need your compatibility shim to do. So you don't have to worry about all the different possible APIs that might be called or that you might, you know, inadvertently use because you don't realize you're dealing with an abstraction, you know, on the old version necessarily. No, you can you can just have, you know, your whatever your parent class is, your watch audio player can just expose like the six methods and properties you actually use in the rest of your app. And then you can have a much smaller surface area for bugs and for weird edge cases and everything else. It's it's so Generally, like for when providing compatibility uh, shims, the abstraction method I greatly prefer to the like whole API emulation method. Yeah, and I think too, what's interesting there is if you're building, it, it's a good reminder. I think that if when you're building your own controls or your own functionality, like making it so that if you needed to in the future, like pro- take advantage of the new version of. Um, of something that, that you you know, if you're building good, like segmented, you know, good, good object oriented programming in general, like adding in that functionality shouldn't be that difficult, that difficult anyway. Like there's, well, I, I don't tend to go crazy with like building my own custom classes and like wrappers for system functions. It is certainly something that is like interesting where if you had started off building a, with a watch player class and then the, you know, Apple adds this new thing and you want to take advantage of it. If you'd already been building your the rest of your app against a slightly abstracted version of it, um, like you would have been able to do that even more straightforwardly. And so it's certainly something to keep in the back of your mind if you feel like this is something that is going to come like down the road that you might want to sort of t- plan ahead a little bit. Like, you know, like in my case, I've been trying to keep a lot of my mapping stuff be very high level and sort of segmenting out the implementation from the kind of like the logical definition of what's happening. So I have this abstraction layer anyway, and that's kind of intentional so that I can switch out the sort of the implementation if I need to and want to um, without necessarily, you know, without having to like pull these two things apart. Um, so it's like, it's good. I think if you're heading, if you're building something that you think this might be something you need to ultimately do where you have this like backported, forward ported situation, um, like it's a great situation to make sure you sort of add in that abstraction layer ahead of time and preemptively just to sort of put yourself in a good position for the future. Um, whereas generally, like if it's not the situation where you ever expect that to happen, like maybe don't, you know, like you can definitely go crazy with weird class factories and like you can go like way beyond the point where it's actually useful. Um, but if it's a situation where you kind of expect that you might be needing to do backporting, like just starting as a, with a nice abstraction layer, 
um, I think puts you in a good position. And I think what I found kind of reassuring about this experience myself is that so often this time of year, like from, you know, maybe like April, like March, April to June, I tend to kind of hold off on implementing new features because I'm like, well, what if Apple introduces something like new and you know, new and important and I have to adopt it and I'm wasting work. Um, and in some ways it's slightly freeing that I feel like I'm going to have to support the old versions for a longer period anyway. And so this doesn't have to necessarily be this kind of like fallow period where I can't get a lot of new interesting features built. Um, like I'm just like full steam ahead. I can build stuff. I can add stuff to my applications and I just keep in the back of my mind. I want to keep these things as abstract as possible. And I want to make sure that I'm doing it in a way that if I do need to ultimately back, you know, sort of end up with this backported or more sort of more parallel uh, implementation situation in the future, that I'm in a good place for it. Uh, but I think as long as I go th- go into it with that in mind, it's a, a good situation. And, you know, I'm sort of in some ways I'm gaining a couple of months of pr- productive work a year, which is you know kind of a cool thing. Yeah, but I would I would also caution people against doing too much abstraction prematurely. Uh, if you don't already need the abstraction you probably don't need to write it like if you if you can't immediately see okay i need to make an audio player that will work on watchOS 5 but i want to use the new feature of watchOS 6 which is this concrete thing i already know about for this os that's already out like that that's a that's a fine place to do it but don't start abstracting everything in your entire app because you might someday need it. That that way lies madness and waste. No, it, it's me. It, it's being thoughtful and intentional about that. Like in a, in a situation where you expect to do it, rather than you th- where it's like it's the difference between you might and you probably will, like or you already do. Yeah. So if you're, if you're in one of those situations, then for sure, go ahead. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, premature optimiz- optimization is such a waste of time. So definitely avoid it if you can. And premature abstraction is the root of all evil these days. <laughs> no one optimizes anymore. Now it's all about premature abstractions. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye.